I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. Professor Bob Hewish joining you from the Clinton Global Initiative 2022, and I'm here with Michael Barnes, who's part of the Viva Equity Fund, to talk about what in the world is wrong with rent and real estate today. Mike. Hello, Bob. Thanks for having me here, and we're super excited to talk about America's renter wealth equity gap, which is really a massive uh, racial, economic, gender, and even disability gap for homeowners and renters. So your, your, your organization, Viva Equity Fund, uh, specifically, what, what is the goal? What is the mission? Yeah, our goal is to help renters build wealth. Uh, that's it. Right now, the median renter in America has $6,300 in net wealth. The median homeowner in America has $255,000 in net wealth. However, when I say renter, you think of something amorphous. In fact, the majority of black and brown households are renters. The majority of single mom, 69% of single mom households are renters. The majority of low income and even independent adults with disabilities are renters. So really we've got that kind of a diversity gap in America in terms of equity and wealth. Okay. So it's about building wealth for renters, but let's back it up to the point you made right at the beginning. This is a gender issue. This is a racial issue. And it seems like this is a foundation of inequality that's just getting absolutely worse. How come? Yeah, so there's a lot of things. One, if you think about even structurally, uh, who was able to buy homes in the past? There was redlining. We've got tremendous now public awareness increasingly about the practices historically. And if you think about this goal of helping people own a home, we've got a lot of tax incentives. A lot of people say they only buy a house to take advantage of tax incentives. Well, that sounds great on face. We want to create more homeowners. But once you become a homeowner and now you're just accumulating and accelerating wealth building, you keep getting those taxes, which means the people who were locked out of uh, owning a home in the past through redlining and other historically racist and sexist and other uh, you know, practices, they were denied this participation, which meant there was a regressive tax. They were regressively taxed. And let me give you an example. In Texas, where I spent a lot of time, you know, taxes on property went up by 30, as much as 50% in certain counties. Travis County, Austin, Texas, where it's based, 50% median property tax increase in 2021. And what that means is for homeowners, they actually have a protection. So when the tax appraisers are out there marking these things up, they're like, oh, everyone's gonna be fine. The homeowners are capped at 10% for that year. But if you're a renter, your landlord gets that entire tax penalty hit. What are they going to do but pass it through to the renter? And in fact, renters uh, and the landlords are saying they want to actually put the tax component of the bill on the receipt they give to the renter so they understand this is not them hating their renter. They don't have a choice when commercial property doesn't have that kind of exemption. So this is huge because, you know, municipal, state, all governments try to look for taxation and money from making property. But what you're saying is that to broad stroke it like this, because more and more people are buying houses for rental purposes, and we can even talk about the whole impact that Airbnb has had on the uh, on cities around the world, that is going to get passed on to people who really can't afford it. Yeah, so I'm going to talk first about politicians and then about the free market point you're making, which is very important. It's like the diamond trade. We'll get to that. So for politicians, I didn't know any of this when I got started. We were just people who were idealistic. We were real estate investors. We wanted to say, hey, we think if renters are working their entire lives, providing shelter for their family, 
and they're actually making all of us wealthy, maybe they should get a derivative percentage cut in all these profits. So we wanted to create a mechanism for them to earn rewards and build wealth. That was our goal. We go into this and we realize there's these regressive taxes on renters and politicians go out there and say, we want affordable housing, but we also want housing to be the greatest appreciating asset for Americans. Well, how can it literally be both? If it's appreciating a double digit year over year, faster than inflation even, faster than wages, people can't afford it. So at some point you have to get serious as a politician and be honest about what your priority is. Is it helping the winners keep winning with homes and at the detriment of our diverse renters or is it actual affordable housing? That's a fact. On the second side, like the diamond trade, if you didn't know there's more than enough diamonds in the world, they just put them in vaults to create false scarcity. Well, that's what we do in housing. These large institutional funds, I won't name them today, but these large institutional funds and other factors like Airbnb are acquiring more and more single family homes for rental purposes, trying to push us into a renter society. Why? Because if you constrain supply of single family homes, now you've got more people who want them. That creates an inflated price. And guess what? The rent price doesn't go down. It indexes to the single family home price. That means these companies, these whales, have the ability to choose the price of a house either for sale or for rent in the market. They're able to control and thus uh, corner the market. So are we seeing right now just property prices just escalate, go up and up? Because you said like there's all this incentive and, and selling of the incentive to say by increasing home prices down the road, this will be the guaranteed uh, you know, nest egg for your savings and the economy down the road. But I'm thinking if we rolled it back to like 2008, there was a huge correction in, in property. I mean, is this in the, in the cards coming forward or, or what are we seeing here in terms of a market trend? That is a great question. And there's two things I'm gonna talk about. First, the one thing 2008 created as a silver lining was when the water went out and everyone lost their home and frankly, the people who were the culprits, if you've seen The Big Short or read Michael Lewis's book, the people who were the culprits got away scot-free, right? Wall Street banks, et cetera. The people who were the whales driving uh, unrealistic loans to people. Well, there has been put in place a set of regulations that have actually made it more likely that if you do buy a home in America today, you're gonna be able to be financially solvent, maintain that home, build tremendous equity and wealth, what that means is it's actually a higher bar, thus harder for people to get access to homeownership. So in a way, it's a good thing because the people who qualify are gonna keep that house. It's a bad thing because fewer people qualify. And the other thing is, right now, um, that's Americans have more home equity than at any point in history, $27 trillion. But the newest thing we learned is Wall Street is actually coming for that wealth. So what Wall Street is doing right now, interest rates are up. Nobody is buying debt, right? So. Wall Street can't sell HELOCs, they can't sell refis. All of those profit centers have cratered to near zero. So what they're doing is they're buying your equity. They're offering to say, hey, we'll give you cash a day for the future appreciation or depreciation, but the future appreciation of your equity. The trick is if you don't pay them back in 10 years, they're gonna switch you to a debt instrument or, or sell your house for you. What they're doing is they're trying to go after that $27 trillion and put it in their pockets. And guess what? They're turning those home equity sharing agreements into bonds and even packaging them into securities. Sound familiar? I've heard that song before. Yes, exactly. So we're just coming out here trying to make the world a better place in a simple way by helping renters earn rewards that vest in interest-bearing vehicles so they can build real wealth. Our renters, even if they rent for 30 years, can actually build a quarter million dollars in net wealth. That is the product we created in market. But we go out there kind of like that characters in the big short and we look at this world and we realize it's full of crap that people are dominating the market, they're manipulating the market, and the future 2008, we believe, is this home equity sharing agreement. 
And now we can see it before it happens. And now are we obligated to take our own action to help forestall that? I, I remember hearing somewhere that the two, the two investment items that have got the highest vulnerability is like petroleum and real estate in terms of that market fluctuation of the price. So with your, your approach here, what is it that you're specifically offering renters to get that wealth generated for them in a safe way? Yeah, so what we've done is we've actually piloted both real estate funds and we've worked with multifamily par- partners, so landlords at scale, to show that, hey, right now there's this sort of three people involved. You've got an owner of the asset, you've got maybe a property manager, and you've got the resident. Well, I've already said that the renter, this diverse female, sometimes disabled person who's working so hard to pay their rent, is actually the cash cow. That is the golden goose making everybody rich, right? And what we found is if you actually invest them, kind of like offering employees a little bit of profit sharing, if you say, hey, you're paying your rent on time. Hey, you're saving me money as a landlord by not you know, damaging your unit and taking good care of it. Hey, you gave me proper notice so I can fill your unit in a timely cycle and reduce the vacancy and making me more money. Why don't I give you a piece of that profit? We found that you can give renters up to 8% of each month's rent payment in rewards and the property actually increases in value because you're actually reducing the operating expenses. And we discovered this, we open sourced our unit economics, and now we're growing to different multifamily partners, including pure profit motive partners, but also impact partners to scale to ideally 10,000 units by the end of 2023. And what were you saying, uh, someone who's in a renting position right now, over the long term, what's the level of wealth they could accumulate through this model? A quarter million dollars, and the reason is this, 8% is not random. If you ever see an advertisement for a first free month rent concession, that's actually 8.3% of your annual rent. You just don't think of it that way. So if you take that same giveaway that you're not investing and you package it in an interest-bearing account, that's 8.3%. If that compounds similar to real estate investors over 30 years, that's a quarter million bucks. That's just math. So this seems to be, you know, we're, we're now putting money back in people's pockets. And it's well documented that when you are in a position of rent, debt can quickly follow. So reversing that. But there's still this global trend where if you want to be part of the club, you've got to own property somewhere. So there's that bigger issue that's still going to be lingering in the background. But actually, what we've created is a third way. Because I said before that some homeowners only buy homes because of tax advantages, because they've been told by the government, if you don't, we're going to punish you. In fact, millennials, they don't want to commit to a single city, nonetheless a job, for more than one to two years. The freedom that people aspire is a freedom to explore the world, explore America. Airbnb is onto something. What young people want is to be able to go where they want to go, when they want to go, and they demand the right to build wealth. So what we've done is we've actually caught a current of the future millennial market and people who are in low socioeconomic status and diverse renters and said they actually want the same thing, the ability to go where they want to go and build wealth. So the cool thing is, in our scenario, uh, you're like, why would I buy a house if I don't know if I'm going to be here for a long time, if I can also build wealth while having the flexibility of renting? And one more thing, we've worked with homeowners who are going to lose their home to foreclosure because they can't unlock the equity they built up. Our equity for renters is actually portable. It's diversified. It's not parked. The, the idea that your net wealth should happen to be located entirely where you decide to live is so arbitrary as to be actually a pretty flawed premise. So what we're excited about is this third way could actually become something that actually grows and becomes a true option for people between uh, rent and homeownership. Fascinating. And am I not mistaken, this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. This is something global and you've got interest in that as well. 
Yes, correct. While we're currently operating based in the U.S. today, at this conference, to be frank, we've had amazing conversations with people from South Africa who are working in communities where they have substandard shelters. You can call them shacks, right? And having them actually improve their homes and be vested as a renter and eventually owner of the underlying assets. We've talked to people in Nigeria. We're currently in Nigeria, in Lagos, to rent. You have to pay the entire rent upfront for an entire year. And if you can't afford that and you want to borrow, you pay 3% per day, which compounds and becomes more than 30% per month in interest on a loan. So there is tremendous opportunities to go global. But of course, we want to stay focused on the U.S. until we get strong enough to export this knowledge. But I think we're ready to, we're ready to, to share what we know with anyone. It sounds like a great opportunity, especially knowing that there's been other financial institutions who have tried to remold the, the situation. I'm thinking like Grameen Bank and trying to do... The, the, the microfinancing credit loans, finding wealth where people are saying there isn't wealth. But just with this approach, you're saying it's there. People, even if they're renting, should be able to access it and have the right to it. Yeah, one of the dark secrets in commercial real estate in America that we discovered is that uh, their properties are actually woefully inefficient. And if you're an asset manager in charge of several thousand rental units in America, you want to pretend your units are maximally efficient because that means your job is easier and you're still getting rich, right? If somebody comes and points out that you're inefficient, that means you have to work a lot harder to make the same money. So they're disincentivized in some cases for innovation. We find the folks who get it. In fact, they've educated us. They've told us, Michael, our renters are catching on. We can't keep raising prices because if you think about it, those price increases in rent, the product hasn't changed. So what happens when you keep the same product and charge more and more? Eventually the pot boils over, the renters come for blood. So the smart ones get that they can't just keep cashing in and not making things more efficient. We found that you can actually take a building and make it 5 10% or more efficient by giving renters a piece of the profits. And that's something we're excited about. We are excited to talk to funding partners who would say, wait a minute, I can get more value out of my assets if I replace or ask these portfolio managers to work with enlightened partners. Yeah, that's exactly the future we, we foretell. So speaking of the future and speaking of, the, of today, the last question I got for you, Michael, is uh, when the pandemic struck, you know, people quickly started to try to change their addresses. I mean, a lot of people poured out of Manhattan, cities, uh, people who are you know, right downtown are now in rural areas, suburbs, this sort of thing. Prices spiked. Why did they spike? And would, could we expect something like that to happen again? Yeah, so you have some fundamental things in America. We have a historic and enduring uh, shortage of available single-family homes, right? There are simply not enough homes that people want that exist in the market, and that is a structural issue. And what happens is anytime, similar to COVID, similar to the war in Ukraine that Russia engaged and started, anything like that creates volatility, and volatility causes fear and anxiety, which slows down the process of building more houses. Housing starts is the federal measure of this. And if you follow housing starts, any volatility creates a breakdown in housing starts, which sets us further behind catching up to the market. So part of the reason that real estate is a great investment for people who are not the homeowners, but the ones pouring institutional capital, is that with that structural shortage, you're guaranteed to get a heck of a lot of bang for your buck for a long time. The, the other thing is with, when these people come in and buy up the supply and convert it to rental, as I said before, they're constraining the supply, jacking up the price. Now Schiller, I really love uh, his index, uh, the Case Schiller Index, and he's a great professor who's talking about this every day. His book, uh, Irrational Exuberance, talks about how housing is speculative, like crypto, 
because of the way that we allow our economics to work. But fundamentally, it should be more like a marginally even depreciating asset because it doesn't actually get better over time. When you've actually owned a home, you notice every year this or that thing that you probably should fix and haven't gotten around to. So you treat it like an appreciating asset when in practice, aside from the speculative value, it's technically a depreciating asset. And the Schiller Index, which if you look at, foretold the 2000 uh, uh, collapse in the market, the 2008 housing collapse. Uh, his work, rather, foretold the bubble in 2000, the work in 2008. And he put a new addition in 2015 because he foretold a collapse or potential collapse in the housing market. I think what you're going to see is regionally, to your point, when you have a greater supply than demand, it's going to collapse. And it's going to be the greatest fool theory. The last one to buy the appreciating asset, the inflated asset, loses. And everyone before that technically won. But you are going to see some devastation of that uh, collective wealth. Uh, so my, uh, my last question for you, if people are listening, they want to know more about Viva Equity Fund, more about these issues, what, what should they do? Where should they go? Absolutely. They should go to viva.fund. They should sign up to be a renter. They should sign up to be a landlord and join our portfolio. They should reach out to us at, uh, you know, Michael, that's my name, at viva.fund. They should follow us on Twitter at Viva Equity. Across social media, we're Viva Equity. So. Well, thanks a lot, Michael, for joining us. Uh, enjoy the rest of the Clinton Global Initiative 2022. Hopefully uh, some good partnerships are coming your way from this. Thank you so much, Bob, and you have a great day too.